Welcome to TalkCast and to the next episode in my readings from and reflections upon the fabric of reality. And today it's chapter five, virtual reality. And really this chapter is like a mini exploration of the entire book itself. It's very synecdoche, if you know the term. The idea that part of the whole can represent the whole. And what I continue to marvel at in this book is its prescience in a sense, which is kind of silly. It's a silly thing to say because David, of course, is the author. But it seems prescient in retrospect because it seems to predict so much of the content of the beginning of infinity that absolutely has astounded everyone that has read it ever since. But all that means really is that I just continue to be amazed how much I missed the first time around with the fabric of reality. But again, I forgive myself. I was only 20 years old at its publication and extremely busy at that time, and so it was a lot to absorb. And today we're going to cover, in this one chapter, computation and universality, the nature of personhood to some extent and the centrality of explanations, the nature of mathematics and the limits upon it imposed by physics and lots, lots more, all of those huge themes that come up here on TalkCast because they feature so heavily in the work of David Deutsch more broadly. So no long introduction today. Let's just get into some reading. Chapter 5. Virtual Reality. And David writes, The theory of computation has traditionally been studied almost entirely in the abstract, as a topic in pure mathematics. This is to miss the point of it. Computers are physical objects and computations are physical processes. What computers can or cannot compute is determined by the laws of physics alone, and not by pure mathematics. One of the most important concepts of the theory of computation is universality. A universal computer is usually defined as an abstract machine that can mimic the computations of any other abstract machine in a certain well-defined class. However, the significance of universality lies in the fact that universal computers, or at least good approximations to them, can actually be built, and can be used to compute not just each other's behavior, but the behavior of interesting physical and abstract entities. The fact that this is possible is part of the self-similarity of physical reality that I mentioned in the previous chapter. The best-known physical manifestation of universality is an area of technology that has been mooted for decades but is only now beginning to take off, namely virtual reality. Just pausing there, my reflection, and of course I'm going to come back to this throughout the chapter, but not to harp on about it, but remember that this book was written in 1997. So now 25 years later, not only has virtual reality begun to take off, it is routine to find it in all sorts of places in society, not least people's homes as an entertainment device. I know I've got one, a PS4 VR machine, and the PS4 VR machine is one of the lower cost ones, but it's still fantastic for a whole bunch of things. And I will come back to precisely that. Let's go back to the book. And David writes, quote, The term refers, virtual reality, to any situation in which a person is artificially given the experience of being in a specified environment. For example, a flight simulator, a machine that gives pilots the experience of flying aircraft without having to leave the ground, is a type of virtual reality generator. Such a machine, or more precisely, the computer that controls it, can be programmed with the characteristics of a real or imaginary aircraft. The aircraft's environment, such as the weather and the layout of airports, can also be specified in the program. End quote. And just my reflection on that, because from here, David goes on for a few paragraphs talking about the operation of a flight simulator, which I won't, like I say, 
25 years after he wrote this, because this chapter is referring to some specific technologies, which at the time were extremely new, but now people, I think, are far more familiar with them. We don't need the detailed description. Like I say, personally, I love my PS4 VR machine. It's great. There's a number of first-person shooter games you can get with these virtual reality things. I've got this game called Farpoint. It's the name of this game where you're on an alien planet just filled with spiders and the spiders can jump and lots of them are massive. I wouldn't say it's realistic, but it's realistic enough. It's very cool, very scary. And so you are you are totally immersed because visually you're totally immersed and you're, you've got the headphones in and so, of course, auditory, you're totally immersed, but your other senses are not. But it's enough. It's enough to have just your hearing and your sight, of course, completely consumed by the VR machine to make you feel like you're really there on this alien planet somewhere or other shooting at spiders that are jumping at you and attacking you. And the VR, of course, is not only taking off, it just continues to get better and better. And the only annoying thing at the moment is the weight of the headset, the, how cumbersome these things are in many places. Even the wireless ones are still rather cumbersome. And focusing at the goggles for me has always been a bit of a pain. But otherwise, like I say, it's fully immersive as far as sight and hearing goes. So I'm skipping all of this section where David is giving us an overview of the functioning of flight simulators, especially for people who at the time wouldn't have been familiar with these things hardly at all. So I'm going to pick it up where David is introducing a piece of nomenclature for the purpose of this chapter. And he says, quote, I shall use the term image generator for any device, such as a planetarium, a hi-fi system, or a spice rack, which can generate specifiable sensory input for the user. Specified pictures, sounds, odors, and so on, all count as images. For example, to generate the olfactory image, i.e. the smell of vanilla, one opens the vanilla bottle from the spice rack. To generate the auditory image, i.e. the sound of Mozart's 20th Piano Concerto, one plays the corresponding compact disc on the hi-fi system. Any image generator is a rudimentary sort of virtual reality generator, but the term virtual reality is usually reserved for cases where there is both a wide coverage of the user's sensory range and a substantial element of interaction kicking back between the user and the simulated entities, end quote. Okay, so like I say, that's just a bit of nomenclature to be used in this chapter, this image generator idea, and we'll need it in what's to come. Okay, so I'm skipping again a vast swathe of the beginning of this chapter, and I'm going to pick it up where David writes. Quote, If Bishop Barclay or the Inquisition had known of virtual reality, they would probably have seized upon it as the perfect illustration of the deceitfulness of the senses, backing up their arguments against scientific reasoning. What would happen if the pilot of a flight simulator tried to use Dr. Johnson's test for reality? Although the simulated aircraft and its surroundings do not really exist, they do kick back at the pilot just as if they would if they did exist. The pilot can open the throttle and hear the engines roar in response and feel their thrust through the seat and see them through the window, vibrating and blasting out hot gas in spite of the fact that there are no engines there at all. The pilots may experience the aircraft through a storm and hear the thunder and see the rain driving against the windscreen, though none of those things is there in reality. What is outside the cockpit in reality is just a computer, some hydraulic jacks, television screens and loudspeakers and a perfectly dry and stationary room. Does this invalidate Dr. Johnson's refutation of solipsism? No. His conversation with Boswell could just as well have taken place inside a flight simulator. I refute it thus, he might have said, opening the throttle and feeling the simulated engine kick. 
there is no engine there. What kicks back is ultimately a computer running a program that calculates what an engine would do if it were kicked. But those calculations, which are external to Dr. Johnson's mind, respond to the throttle in the same complex and autonomous way as the engine would. Therefore, they pass the test for reality, and rightly so, for in fact, these calculations are physical processes within the computer. And the computer is an ordinary physical object no less than an engine, and perfectly real. The fact that it is not a real engine is irrelevant to the argument against solipsism. After all, not everything that is real has to be easy to identify, end quote. Just to explain that a little bit more, here the idea is that the external reality is real, even if it's a virtual reality. That, that virtual reality is not part of the person. It's autonomous and outside of the person having the experience. Remember, the whole idea here, if we go back to previous chapters where David was talking about idealism, the Bishop Barclay reference there, these philosophers thought that, well, you could have this situation where you're dreaming reality into existence, it's all ideas, and it's all coming from within you, this ancient idea, really. So solipsism is the claim that only you exist in the universe and that you are dreaming everything into reality. Now, what is our philosophical refutation against that? It's that most of reality is acting in an autonomous way, a way that you cannot possibly predict or explain without going out and investigating your own mind or what is supposedly your own mind, which it turns out has all of the richness of objective reality and external reality beyond your mind. So you're just adding realism the claim that there is an external, objective, physical reality beyond your mind, you're adding to that, that simple statement of realism, the additional assumption, but you're dreaming it all. Okay? And so here, what David is saying is even if, even if you were going to be given all of this, if, you know, you were sort of born into a virtual reality machine or something like that, well, it would still not show that solipsism is real. It would still show that something was external to you, namely the computer running all of this. I would say it's like the difference between the person having the experience and what is generating the experience. During a dream, it is the case that the contents of the dream are produced by the person having the experience. And there might be subjective unpredictability there. But what won't happen is a rich experience of something you've never experienced before. A rich experience. You will not dream of having the actual experience of walking down, let's say, the main street of Melbourne, Australia, if you have never done that before or seen it and so on. Sure, you may dream and experience of that, but not the actual experience which will contain specifics, accurate specifics. You can't just dream up. What particular buildings are actually there? What shops and signs and side streets you will pass and so on? What actually is the case in Melbourne, in the main street of Melbourne, is actually the case. And you can't just dream that into existence unless you've already had it. You might have a dream of an experience, but it won't be an accurate representation of the real reality of what's going on in the main street of Melbourne. On the other hand, of course, if you have had that experience, and in particular, if it's an experience you have daily because of your commute to work every single day going up and down the main street of Melbourne, then it might be the case your dreams will contain accurate specifics. A virtual reality generator could give you such an experience, even though you've never had it before in reality, because it is part of external reality, the reality external to you. Okay, so once again, I'm skipping a couple of pages, and I shall pick it up where David writes, quote, Virtual reality rendering might seem to fall into the same philosophical category as illusions, false trails and coincidences, for these two are phenomena which seem to show us something real but actually mislead us. 
We have seen that the scientific worldview can accommodate, indeed expects, the existence of highly misleading phenomena. It is par excellence the worldview that can accommodate both human fallibility and external sources of error. Nevertheless, misleading phenomena are basically unwelcome. End quote. Uh, someone once described David Deutsch's writing as extremely knowledge dense. You're getting a lot of information packed into a small amount of words. Okay, he's very efficient on the words in order to convey such deep ideas. And here's, here's an example of that. We've got there uh, refutations of uh, empiricism, the claims about human fallibility, the, the idea of errors and correcting errors, and not being able to, of course, experience things as they are. So let's just unpack this a little bit. What does it mean that we have seen that the scientific worldview can accommodate, indeed expects the existence of highly misleading phenomena? Well, I would say this is a kind of refutation of empiricism. Empiricism, remember, is this philosophical position that some scientists especially claim to hold that we get information about reality via our senses. Seeing is believing, in other words. This is what empiricism amounts to. But as we've been at pains to explain here, most of what we see out there, experience <laughs> with our senses, is highly misleading. And our trope example that we go to all the time is looking up into the sky at night and seeing what stars apparently are. That's highly misleading. It's misleading to think that what you're, the information you're getting from your senses there, just your bare senses, is it all going to actually tell you what the true nature of a star is. After all, it appears to us, it seems to any human being, that what the star is is a tiny, dim prick of white light, cold and perhaps closer than they are, you don't get a sense of just how far away stars are. Uh, most of the ones that you can see in the night sky are going to be some tens or hundreds and perhaps at absolute most uh, thousands in the case of the very brightest ones, light years away. You don't get a sense of what a light year is by looking at any bright point of light in the sky at night. After all, some of them are nowhere near as far away as that. They're the planets, they're not even stars at all. And as for most of those stars being cold and dim, no, the exact opposite. Okay, so we're getting very misleading information from our senses. When you take your finger and you rub it across a smooth surface, the desk in front of you, the window plane beside you, something like that, you feel continuity. You feel matter as if it is not made up of particles. Your, your senses, your physical sensation of touch is unable to discriminate <laughs> at any level between the atoms out of which that matter is truly made. So we are misled rather often by our senses. But what does science do? Science error corrects that despite the fact we are fallible, as David mentions there, our human fallibility, and not only are we fallible, there's external sources of error as well. There's, you know, our measuring devices can go wrong. Despite that, the scientific worldview accommodates all of this. It expects it and it accommodates all of this. How? By correcting errors in all of that sense data we have. We conjecture explanations. And then what's the purpose? What do we use the evidence, the, the sense data that we're gathering? We use that in order to discriminate, to decide between theories we've already guessed. I'm skipping a little, and David goes on to say, quote, We shall see that the existence of virtual reality does not indicate that the human capacity to understand the world is inherently limited, but on the contrary, that it is inherently unlimited. End quote. Pausing there, and I think you can guess what I'm going to say. Wow, it's one of those things, that, it's one of those quotes there where you just have to say, well, 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 
There's the beginning of infinity. Here in chapter five of The Fabric of Reality. Let's read it again, because it's just, it's a perfect encapsulation of the, one of the deepest themes of the beginning of infinity. Even though it's not in the beginning of infinity, we might as well say, nothing indicates, quote, that the human capacity to understand the world is inherently limited, but on the contrary, that it is inherently unlimited, end quote. True. We, human beings, are people, and people are defined by their capacity to create explanatory knowledge. And that capacity to create explanatory knowledge is universal. It can be turned in any direction onto any problem about any phenomena. There is nothing, that there is no phenomena for which we cannot generate an explanation. We are universal in our capacity to generate explanations. Because if someone puts forward something that we say, that is claimed not to be explicable, then they would have to have an explanation as to why that thing is not explicable. But that would be a problem that would be soluble. But more importantly than that, as David likes to say, any claim that a particular phenomena is inexplicable to human beings is nothing but an appeal to the supernatural. It's just going back to standard theistic, supernatural, mystical, magical explanations that have been with us since the beginning of time. You can't possibly understand the mind of God. You are a pathetic human. You are like a cockroach compared to the alien intelligence out there, the artificial general superintelligence that is yet to come, or God of monotheism. In all these cases, you can't understand the ultimate nature of reality. So anyone, even with their scientific rationalist mindset who comes to you to say, there is something there that cannot be understood by human beings, is doing the same thing as the priest, the rabbi, the monk, and so on and so forth, who is saying some things are just beyond the ken of people to ever fully appreciate and understand. And I think that's fine. Allow them to believe that. So long as they're not getting in the way of everyone else who's actually trying to come to a rational, realistic understanding of reality. Okay, we have optimism here, and our optimism says problems are soluble. And the hard stuff we have to deal with as human beings, the things that cause suffering, the evils in the world can be overcome because they're just a matter of a lack of knowledge. So please, step aside people who think that certain problems are not soluble, who think that our capacity for understanding the world is inherently limited. Those people can step aside and allow the rest of us to go forward into understanding reality, because we think it's inherently unlimited, and so there's no barriers before us. Let's keep going. And David writes, quote, It is no anomaly brought about by the accidental properties of human sense organs, but is a fundamental property of the multiverse at large. And the fact that the multiverse has this property, what property? This property that the universe is comprehensible, or that we are in it, we can comprehend the universe. Far from being a minor embarrassment for realism and science is essential for both. It is the very property that makes science possible. It is not something that we would rather do without. It is something that we literally could not do without. These may seem rather lofty claims to make on behalf of flight simulators and video games, but it is the phenomenon of virtual reality in general that occupies a central place in the scheme of things. Not any particular virtual reality generator. So I want to consider virtual reality in as general a way as possible. What, if any, are its ultimate limits? What sorts of environment can in principle be artificially rendered and with what accuracy? By in principle, I mean ignoring transient limitations of technology, but taking into account all limitations that may be imposed by the principles of logic and physics. 
The way I have defined it, a virtual reality generator is a machine that gives the user experiences of some real or imagined environment, such as an aircraft, which is or seems to be outside the user's mind. Let me call those external experiences. External experiences are to be contrasted with internal experiences, such as one's nervousness when making one's first solo landing, or one's surprise at the sudden appearance of a thunderstorm out of a clear blue sky. A virtual reality generator indirectly causes the user to have internal experiences, as well as external ones, but it cannot be programmed to render a specific internal experience. For example, a pilot who makes roughly the same flight twice in the simulator will have roughly the same external experiences on both occasions. But on the second occasion, we'll probably be less surprised when the thunderstorm appears. Of course, on the second occasion, the pilot would probably also react differently to the appearance of the thunderstorm, and that would make the subsequent external experiences quite different too. But the point is that although one can program the machine to make a thunderstorm appear in the pilot's field of view whenever one likes, one cannot program it to make the pilot think whatever one likes in response. End quote. And here David goes on to consider virtual reality that intervenes in the mind directly. You know, drugs are one such thing, but they're sort of low-resolution approximations to what we would imagine could be done in the future with individual electrodes going into individual neurons or perhaps getting right into the synapse and fiddling with the neurotransmitters directly. If you can do that with some level of precision without limit, you know, presumably an interface of the future would be able to replicate, simulate, interfere with, whatever you want to do, with the individual neurotransmitters, with the chemicals themselves. Therefore, you'd be able to simulate literally any experience that a brain could possibly conjure for the mind of a person. We're nowhere near there yet. A glass of wine is obviously going to alter your experience of reality, but it is a very crude method in which to alter one's mood or change one's experience of the sensations and the data that's coming into their brain and then interpreted by their mind. Okay, so I'm skipping a bit and picking it up where David writes. Another type of experience, which certainly cannot be artificially rendered, is a logically impossible one. I have said that a flight simulator can create the experience of a physically impossible flight through a mountain. But nothing can create the experience of factorising the number 181 because that is logically impossible. 181 is a prime number. Believing that one has factorised 181 is a logically possible experience, but an internal one, and so also outside the scope of virtual reality. Another logically impossible experience is unconsciousness. For when one is unconscious, one is by definition not experiencing anything. Not experiencing anything is quite different from experiencing a total lack of sensations, sensory isolation, which is, of course, a physically possible environment. Having excluded logically impossible experiences and internal experiences, we are left with the vast class of logically possible external experiences, experiences of environments which are logically possible, but may or may not be physically possible. Something is physically possible if it is not forbidden by the laws of physics. In this book, I shall assume that the laws of physics include an as-yet-unknown rule determining the initial state or other supplementary data necessary to give, in principle, a complete description of the multiverse. Otherwise, these data would be a set of intrinsically inexplicable facts. In that case, an environment is physically possible if and only if it actually exists somewhere in the multiverse, i.e. in some universe or universes. 
Something is physically impossible if it does not happen anywhere in the multiverse. Pausing there, my reflection. And importantly, my ruminations on this. So following the science of canon can't, following constructor theory, and following what we know about quantum theory, given the Everettian uh, so-called interpretation, unitary quantum theory, it's true that anything that can possibly happen is going to happen somewhere in the multiverse. But that does not mean that all things that happen are necessarily caused or represented in equal measure throughout the multiverse. As a silly example, every single time the lottery in your country is run and you buy a ticket, there is a possible sequence of universes where you are the winner week upon week upon week upon week because it's physically possible. It's not ruled out by the laws of quantum theory. And so, therefore, it's going to happen somewhere. But each time you win the lottery, the measure of universes where you subsequently continue to win gets ever thinner and thinner and thinner. There is a smaller and smaller measure of universes where that happens. You shouldn't expect it to happen. It may very well happen somewhere in physical reality in the multiverse, but these long chains of coincidences, they are not expected to continue. And some of those chains of coincidences can't be said to be causal. You go to my multiverse series on that, but what we're basically saying here is the classic Harry Potter universe where a bespeckled boy somewhere in the multiverse, every time he holds aloft a stick, his wand, and says the magic words, abracadabra or whatever they say in Harry Potter, a lightning bolt, a spark of electricity shoots out from the wand. Now, that's not because he says the magic words and it may have nothing whatever to do with either the bespeckled boy or with the wooden stick that he's holding. These are just chains of coincidences. It's not causal. It's not that the boy is causing the magic wand to be magic and to release lightning from the tip of the wand. These are just coincidental things. Yet it appears causal to everyone in that universe, and so people in that universe might believe, come to think that the bespeckled boy is in fact, magical. But also, in every single one of those universes, it should be expected that the very next time he says the magic words, that no spark does happen. In the overwhelming majority of universes where he does try it, it fails. But there is a sliver of universes where it continues to happen. Okay, all of that is fine. But the, the, the thing here is that there's a difference between something being physically possible in the universe actually happening and something occurring in our world, our part of the multiverse, if you like, where it actually forms a causal explanation of what's going on. And that usually comes down to the creation of knowledge. Somewhere in the multiverse, human beings have figured out how to be effectively immortal, you know, not die of sickness. Maybe they still die of accidents, but they've cured all illnesses. Now, that part of the multiverse is going to continue to grow, presumably. The proportion of universes will continue to increase because it's physically possible and it's in very important knowledge, useful information, which will grow over time because knowledge by its very nature is useful information. That's very useful. People want to solve the problem of why human beings keep on getting ill, sick, and dying. And if we can figure out how to solve this, then so will our counterparts in other universes. And if they already have, we will too eventually. If there's no physical law standing in the way of effective immortality, then this is a possible thing that will grow in terms of how much of the multiverse it begins to occupy. As David has written these papers, the structure of the multiverse is determined by information flow. And so essentially, what happens into the distant future is a result of the knowledge creation that people undertake in our universe and in universes right beside ours, so to speak. 
And so in our part of the universe where we're creating knowledge, that knowledge is, of course, possible. And in the case of immortality or any other important issue that we would like to find the solution for, we'd like to find immortality, we'd like to find fusion power, how to do it here safely on Earth, perhaps even something more efficient than fusion power, who knows what. If it's possible, then we will find it. And that will propagate throughout the multiverse and become an increasingly more important causal reason why other things happen in the multiverse. Now, as compared to that other a sequence of possible things, the Harry Potter universe is where I just mentioned, where it will become an increasingly smaller proportion of the multiverse over time, where magic appears to have worked, but never actually did work. Okay, But knowledge creation, actual knowledge creation, is a cause of the way in which the multiverse evolves over time, because that's useful information that continues to remain instantiated in the universe, continues to get itself copied, because it's solving a particular problem. So that's how that comes to bear all on this. Let's continue. David writes, I define the repertoire of a virtual reality generator as the set of real or imaginary environments that the generator can be programmed to give the user the experience of. My question about the ultimate limits of virtual reality can be stated like this. What constraints, if any, do the laws of physics impose on the repertoires of virtual reality generators? And in this section, David goes on to consider the uh, the, the resolution, uh, the, the, the limit of precision of sensors. Now, these days, as he mentions, and I'm not going to read this part, uh, audio equipment, speakers, high-fidelity speakers and stuff, it routinely replicate precisely the sounds of reality. You know, I've got cats, I play my cats because they are entertained by it. These sounds and images of birds on a screen. Now, the sounds, even to me, are completely indistinguishable from the real sounds that birds make. So... They are perfectly replicating reality. To me, if I'm immersed in the soundscape of artificial bird sounds, it may as well be real bird sounds. Repeat for just about anything else. I mean, my ears are unable to distinguish at this point between reality and the audible reproduction. Now, there is a difference, I would say, with music sometimes, just because who knows what. I, I, I'm not a musician i can't explain this in technical terms but certainly if you're at a concert there is a different experience and the sound there is different to what a recorded concert is i don't think they've got that quite right yet for reasons maybe listeners can tell me with screens with the visual stuff we're just about there aren't we it's just about the case that a 4k or 8K, 16K, I think we're getting to high-resolution screen as of 2022. That's going to date us. Someone's going to be listening to this in 2024, 2026 and say, we've got much better screens now. Anyway, those screens are going to be as high-resolution as a window. You're going to be able to look at the screen and be unable to tell the difference between the screen and actual reality. So we're there with sound. We're there with vision. What about other stuff? One of the really interesting ones, neither sight nor sound, is smell. Um, and one of the pioneers of, perhaps the pioneer of virtual reality as we experience it now in games and so forth, connected up to our computers, is Jaron Lanier, who I've mentioned before on the podcast, great iconoclastic thinker. Another person, by the way, who apparently didn't complete high school, I don't think, and not much university either, um, but has contributed to many different fields, uh, to mathematics, to physics, and of course to technology. Uh, he wrote a book, uh, which I recommend to everyone, You Are Not a Gadget, wonderful book, again about the deep mystery of what it is to be a human being. I've often said that Jerome Lanier is my favourite optimistic pessimist. <laughs> He's a bit of a pessimist about various matters, but 
somehow comes around to this positive, wonderfully positive vision of human beings and even a positive vision of economics, which is rare today. Most other people are tending the collectivist uh, direction. He tends more into the free trade, free markets direction. But there's still this sort of pessimism about technology. Now, maybe he's right in, to a certain extent about that. He's not a great fan of social media. That's taking me far afield of what I wanted to say. Back in his first book, You Are Not a Gadget, he writes about this question about how to have smell in virtual reality. Can we have smell in the same way that we have virtual reality sound and virtual reality vision? What would goggles with um, that stimulate the olfactory system be like? Let me just read uh, a section from You Are Not a Gadget, page 184 if you happen to have the book. And he writes, so uh, Jerron writes, quote, For 20 years or so, I gave a lecture introducing the fundamentals of virtual reality. I'd review the basics of vision and hearing as well as of touch and taste. At the end, the questions would begin and one of the first ones was usually about smell. Will we have smells in virtual reality anytime soon? Maybe, but probably just a few. Odours are fundamentally different from images or sounds. The latter can be broken down into primary components that are relatively straightforward for computers and the brain to process. The visible colours are merely words for different wavelengths of light. Every sound wave is actually composed of numerous sine waves, each of which can be easily described mathematically. Each one is like a particular size of bump in the corduroy roads of my childhood. In other words, both colours and sounds can be described with just a few numbers. A wide spectrum of colours and tones is described by the interpolations between those numbers. The human retina need be sensitive to only a few wavelengths or colours in order for our brains to process all the intermediate ones. Computer graphics work similarly. A screen of pixels, each capable of reproducing red, green or blue, can produce approximately all the colours that the human eye can see. A music synthesizer can be thought of as generating a lot of sine waves then layering them to create an array of sounds. Odours are completely different, as is the brain's method of sensing them. Deep in the nasal passage shrouded by a mucous membrane sits a patch of tissue, the olfactory epithelium studded with neurons that detect chemicals. Each of these neurons has cup-shaped proteins called olfactory receptors. When a particular molecule happens to fall into a matching receptor, a neural signal is triggered that is transmitted to the brain as an odour. A molecule too large to fit into one of the receptors has no odour. The number of distinct odours is limited only by the number of olfactory receptors capable of interacting with them. Linda Buck of the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Centre and Richard Axel of Columbia University, winners of the 2004 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine, have found that the human nose contains about 1,000 different types of olfactory neurons, each type able to detect a particular set of chemicals. This adds up to a profound difference in the underlying structure of the senses, a difference that gives rise to compelling questions about the way we think and perhaps even about the origins of language. There is no way to interpolate between two smell molecules. True, odours can be mixed together to form millions of scents, but the world's smells can't be broken down into just a few numbers on a gradient. There is no smell pixel. Think of it this way. Colours and sounds can be measured with rulers, but odours must be looked up in a dictionary. That's a shame from the point of view of a virtual reality technologist. There are thousands of fundamental odours, far more than the handful of primary colours. Perhaps someday we will be able to wire up a person's brain in order to create the illusion of smell. 
but it would take a lot of wires to address all those entries in the mental smell dictionary. Then again, the brain must have some way of organising all those odours. Maybe at some level smells do fit into a pattern. Maybe there's a smell pixel after all. Okay, end quote. And then Jerron goes on uh, writing in this vein, talking more about smell. But that's it's very interesting, isn't it? So fundamentally of a different kind. So while you have wavelengths effectively for light and for sound, no such wavelength exists for smell. Instead, as he says there, it's a dictionary that you have to look up particular things. But David's not so much talking about that kind of limitation. As Jerron admits there, and as David agrees, if you could just get into the individual neurons, problem solved. <laughs> I say problem solved, of course. In principle, it's physically possible. In practice, at the moment, we don't have much of a clue about how to do this at all. David actually writes in the very next section on this. So I'll just read the section that David writes about this after he explains how virtual reality with vision and hearing would work. He says, but what about the other senses? Quote, is it obvious that it is physically possible to build a general purpose chemical factory that can produce any specified combination of millions of different odoriferous chemicals at a moment's notice? Or machine which inserted into a gourmand's mouth can assume the taste and texture of any possible dish to say nothing of creating the hunger and thirst that precede the meal and the physical satisfaction that follows it, end quote. So yes, we've got uh, difficulties here with these other kinds of senses. Now, again, those practical difficulties pose no barrier to what is physically possible. And if you're watching this on YouTube, I'm putting up the slide of the image that appears in the book. And it's a table, a ta uh, table 5.1, a classification of experiences with examples of each. Virtual reality is concerned with the generation of logically possible external experiences, which are only in the top left region of the table. So for people listening, we've got this table here of both external and internal experiences and the logically possible experiences and the logically impossible experiences. So the ones that are ruled out, that no virtual reality generator can possibly generate, produce, would be the experience of factorising a prime number. That's an external experience which is logically impossible. And unconsciousness would be an internal experience which is logically impossible. So it's logically possible to be proud of one's piloting abilities, but that's not something that a virtual reality generator could do. Because the virtual reality generator we're talking about isn't actually going directly into your mind to fiddle with your capacity to have a particular thought or a particular idea. So all of it, what a virtual reality um, generator is limited to are things that are external and physically possible and physically impossible as well. So for example, piloting an aircraft is physically possible. It's an external experience. But also piloting an aircraft such that it flies faster than the speed of light is also something a virtual reality generator could do. Physically impossible, but it could give you that experience, or at least represent that experience. David's about to explain a little bit more on that point. Now, the, before we get there, the next part is about some of the practical difficulties, not merely difficulties, perhaps impossibilities of generating certain experiences or sensations, one of which is to do with gravity. Now, now weightlessness is one such. Now, you can fiddle with someone's experience of uh, gravity, in certain ways. I know I had this back when I was a, a child and I went to Disneyland for, I think, the, only the second time and they had a Star Wars ride and you went on this ride and, of course, it was, a, it was a, one of the early forms of virtual reality. And you and the other people on the ride, all you were doing was staring at a screen and on the screen in front of you, and you were also listening to the sounds, on the screen in front of you was, was where you were going on the ride. Now, if it wanted to give you the experience of accelerating 
Then of course, the simulator thing, just like a flight simulator, used hydraulics to pitch the entire thing upwards. And if it wanted to give you the experience of quickly decelerating, then it pitched the thing downwards towards the ground. And this takes advantage of something called the equivalence principle. Now, the equivalence principle comes from general relativity. It's an important idea where if you're listening to this on planet Earth and you're sitting down, then the force of gravity upon you, I shouldn't say force, the, the strength of the gravity, and we can measure strength, the strength of gravity in various different ways. One way is to talk about the acceleration due to gravity. The number that's normally used is 9.8-ish. Now, the units can be newtons per kilogram, but equivalently, we can talk about... 9.8 meters per second squared. Okay, that's the number, that's the value of gravity. If there was such a thing as the surface of Jupiter, the value would be higher, you would feel heavier. And if you went to the moon, the value is about one fifth of what it is here on Earth, and so therefore you feel lighter. Now the equivalence principle basically says this, that if the value here on the surface of Earth is 9.8 meters per second squared, when you're just sitting there in a chair on the surface of the Earth. Then if you go into deep space somewhere or other, where you are weightless, so to speak, far from any gravitational body, then if you wanted to replicate what it was like on Earth, all you would need to do would be to accelerate at the rate of 9.8 meters per second squared. So you could stick yourself in a box, and if you were unable to see outside, if it was a solid metal box, then there would be no experiment that you could do inside the box to tell the difference between whether you're in a box in deep space accelerating at 9.8 metres per second squared or on the surface of the Earth completely stationary but subject to the gravitational field of the Earth of 9.8 metres per second squared. That's the equivalence principle. In other words, accelerations and gravitational fields are equivalent in that way. Even though we can tell by looking at them that the, the cause of the two different things is somewhat different. Now, what's that got to do with anything at all? Well, if you want to simulate literal weightlessness here on Earth with a virtual reality machine, you've got some problems to overcome. And perhaps those problems are impossibly high in terms of, even in principle, being able to overcome. On Earth... If an astronaut wants to train in weightlessness, then what they have to do is to get into an aeroplane, and the aeroplane follows a parabolic path. David explains this, and the descent of the parabolic path can be such that you can experience literal weightlessness. There's no longer a gravitational field acting upon your body, and so you feel weightless. You are weightless. You will not register upon a scale. We also call that freefall, in other words. The best that a flight simulator on Earth could do, if it wants to give you that sensation, would be, aside from getting directly into your brain, of course, if it was able to somehow get directly into your brain, would be on virtual reality then, um, then it could give you the sensation of weightlessness. However, the only other way would be to put the flight simulator itself into freefall, <laughs> which obviously means you'd want the flight simulator at high altitude and then you're not simulating weightlessness, you are weightless. But how to simulate freefall on the ground? David asks, and let me just read the section. He says, how to simulate it? Well, quote, not easily, for the laws of physics get in the way. Known physics provides no way other than freefall, even in principle, of removing an object's weight. The only way of putting a flight simulator into freefall while it remained stationary on the surface of the Earth would be somehow to suspend a massive body such as another planet of similar mass, or a black hole, above it. Even if this were possible, remember, we are concerned here not with immediate practicality, but with what the laws of physics do or do not permit. A real aircraft could also produce frequent 
complex changes in the magnitude and direction of the occupant's weight by manoeuvring or switching its engines on and off. To simulate these changes, the massive body would have to be moved around just as frequently, and it seems likely that the speed of light, if nothing else, would impose an absolute limit on how fast this could be done. And then David goes on to explain the uh, approximations that we use, you know, going underwater, for example, gives you an approximation, but it's a crude approximation to weightlessness, so we can ignore those. And he ends up concluding by saying, or asking, quote, but could one ever render the experience perfectly in a flight simulator that remained firmly on the ground? If not, then there would be an absolute limit on the fidelity with which flying experiences can ever be rendered artificially. To distinguish between a real aircraft and a simulation, a pilot would only have to fly it in freefall trajectory and not see whether weightlessness occurred or not. And then, skipping a little, David goes on to say, weightlessness and all other sensations can, in principle, be rendered artificially. Eventually, it will become possible to bypass the sense organs altogether and directly stimulate the nerves that lead from them to the brain. So we do not need general purpose chemical factories or impossible artificial gravity machines when we have understood the olfactory organs well enough to crack the code in which they send signals to the brain when they detect sense, a computer with suitable connections to the relevant nerves could send the brain the same signals. Then the brain could experience the sense without the corresponding chemicals ever having existed. Similarly, the brain could experience the authentic sensation of weightlessness even under normal gravity. And of course, no televisions or headphones would be needed either. Thus, David goes on to say, the laws of physics impose no limit on the range and accuracy of image generators. There is no possible sensation or sequence of sensations that human beings are capable of experiencing that could not, in principle, be rendered artificially. Thus, the laws of physics impose no limits on the range and accuracy of image generators. One day, as a generalization of movies, there will be what Aldous Huxley in Brave New World called feelies, movies for all the senses. One will be able to feel the rocking of a boat beneath one's feet, hear the waves and smell the sea, see the changing colours of the sunset on the horizon and feel the wind in one's hair, whether or not one has any hair, all without leaving dry land or venturing out of doors. Not only that, feelies will just as easily be able to depict scenes that have never existed and never could exist. Or they could play the equivalent of music, beautiful abstract combinations of sensations composed to delight the senses. That every possible sensation can be artificially rendered is one thing, that it will one day be possible once and for all to build a single machine that can render any possible sensation calls for something extra, universality. A feeling machine with that capability would be a universal image generator. Okay, then David goes on to talk about the possibility of creating these universal image generators. And so I'm skipping a, a bit there. Again, we go into the limits of technology, the, 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 the parochial limits of technology at any given time, how good our audio reproduction happens to be. So skipping that, picking it up where David writes, quote, if an image generator is playing a recording taken from life, its accuracy may be defined as the closeness of the rendered images to the ones that a person in the original situation would have perceived. More generally, if the generator is rendering artificially designed images such as a cartoon or music played from a written composition, the accuracy is the closeness of the rendered images to the intended ones. By closeness, we mean closeness as perceived by the user. If the rendering is so close as to be indistinguishable by the user from what is intended, then we call it perfectly accurate. So a rendering that is perfectly accurate for one user may contain inaccuracies that are perceptible 
to a user with sharper senses or with additional senses. Pause there, my reflection. And one might also add, and more knowledge as well. I can certainly imagine um, listening to a piece of music that I think is a perfect representation, a perfect rendering of a previous piece, but not knowing that much about music, I imagine someone else who has better knowledge of music, even if they don't have sharper senses than me, would be able to tell the difference. Okay, I'm skipping a bit. David goes into uh, what a universal image generator amounts to. You know, this is the same as a computer, all all actual computers, we call them universal computers, but of course, all actual computers, to, to uh, approximations to universal computers. To be a truly universal computer, you need an infinite amount of memory uh, in order to do, you know, literally any possible computation that is possible. Well, that includes computations that might last for the, you know, the, the length of the universe, so therefore you need a lot of, you know, memory in order to do that. The same is true for this universal image generator. It would need uh, something, so an amount of memory that allows it to play a recording of unlimited duration, as David says. And so would need to uh, be able to maintain itself as it goes along as well. So I'm skipping bits here, and I'll pick it up where David writes. Quote, The human mind affects the body and the outside world by emitting nerve impulses. Therefore, a virtual reality generator can in principle obtain all the information it needs about what the user is doing by intercepting the nerve signals coming from the user's brain. Those signals which would have gone to the user's body can instead be transmitted to a computer and decoded to determine exactly how the user's body would have moved. The signals sent back to the brain by the computer can be the same as those that would have been sent by the body if it were in the specified environment. If the specification called for it, the simulated body could also react differently from the real one. For example, to enable it to survive in simulations of environments that would kill a real human body. Or to simulate malfunctions of the body. I had better admit here that it is probably too great an idealization to say the human mind interacts with the outside world only by emitting and receiving nerve impulses. There are chemical messages passing in both directions as well. I am assuming that in principle those messages could also be intercepted and replaced at some point between the brain and the rest of the body. Thus the user would lie motionless, connected to the computer, but having the experience of interacting fully with the simulated world, in effect living there. Okay, pausing there, my reflection. Uh, This is, as David goes on to say, uh, basically talked about in uh, Descartes' meditations with the demon. The demon is intercepting your senses, your brain, whatever, and perhaps deceiving you about the real nature of the world. This is exactly the same thing is true in The Matrix, the movie by the Wachowski brothers, that that the Matrix movie, the the series of movies where human beings uh, might be laying in pods and their their nervous system has a cable attached to it which intercepts these signals going to and from the brain to make you think that you're experiencing a full 3D reality world but in fact you are laying in a pod somewhere as the fuel source or the energy source for a a great nefarious computer. (laughs) Same idea. So skipping lots more and I'm just picking it up where David says, quote, I do not want to understate the practical problems involved in intercepting all the nerve signals passing into and out of the human brain and in cracking the various codes involved, but this is a finite set of problems that we shall have to solve once only. After that, the focus of virtual reality technology will shift once and for all to the computer, to the problem of programming it to render various environments. What environments we shall be able to render will no longer depend on what sensors and image generators we can build, but only on what environments we can specify. 
Specifying an environment will mean supplying a program for the computer, which is the heart of the virtual reality generator. End quote. Then David goes on to say how a virtual reality generator, unlike an image generator, the virtual reality generator responds to the user's movements and so on inside that environment, what the user chooses to do. And by way of further exploring this idea, uh, David talks about playing tennis. And so he says, quote, the number of possible tennis games that can be played in a single environment that is rendered by a single program is very large. Consider a rendering of the centre court at Wimbledon from the point of view of a player. Suppose, very conservatively, that in each second of the game, the player can move in one of two perceptibly different ways. Perceptibly, that is, to the player. Then after two seconds, there are four possible games. After three seconds, eight possible games, and so on. After about four minutes, the number of possible games that are perceptibly different from one another exceeds the number of atoms in the universe, and it continues to rise exponentially. For a program to render that one environment accurately, it must be capable of responding in any one of those myriad perceptibly different ways, depending upon how the player chooses to behave. If two programs respond in the same way to every possible action by the user, then they render the same environment. If they would respond perceptibly different to even one possible action, they render different environments. That remains so, even if the user never happens to perform the action that shows up the difference. The environment a program renders for a given type of user with a given connecting cable is a logical property of the program, independent of whether the program is ever executed. A rendered environment is accurate insofar as it would respond in the intended way to every possible action of the user. Thus, its accuracy depends not only on experiences which users of it actually have, but also on experiences they do not have, but would have had if they had chosen to behave differently during the rendering. This may sound paradoxical, but as I have said, it is a straightforward consequence of the fact that virtual reality is, like reality itself, interactive. This gives rise to an important difference between image generation and virtual reality generation. The accuracy of an image generator's rendering can in principle be experienced, measured and certified by the user. But the accuracy of a virtual reality rendering never can be. For example, if you are a music lover and you know a particular piece well enough, you can listen to a performance of it and confirm that it is a perfectly accurate rendering, in principle, down to the last note, phrasing, dynamics and all. But if you are a tennis fan who knows Wimbledon's centre court perfectly, you can never confirm that a purported rendering of it is accurate even if you are free to explore the rendered centre court for however long you like, and to kick it in whatever way you like, and even if you have equal access to the real centre court for comparison, you cannot ever certify that the program does indeed render the real location. For you can never know what would have happened if only you had explored a little more or looked over your shoulder at the right moment. Perhaps if you had sat on the rendered umpire's chair and shouted fault, a nuclear submarine would have surfaced through the grass and torpedoed the scoreboard, end quote. So what's David saying there? Well, obviously that wouldn't happen on the real centre court. <laughs> so if it happened in the rendered centre court, then centre court at Wimbledon, you know, if you yell fault in the umpire's chair and the nuclear submarine arises, then clearly it's not an accurate rendering of the actual centre court where that thing would not have happened. Okay, let's keep going. Quote, on the other hand... If you find even one difference between the rendering and the intended environment, you can immediately certify that the rendering is inaccurate. 
unless that is the rendered environment has some intentionally unpredictable features. For example, a roulette wheel is designed to be unpredictable. If we make a film of roulette being played in a casino, that film may be said to be accurate if the numbers that are shown coming up in the film are the same numbers that actually come up when the film was made. The film will show the same numbers every time it is played. It is totally predictable. So an accurate image of an unpredictable environment must be predictable. But what does it mean for a virtual reality rendering of a roulette wheel to be accurate, as before? It means that a user should not find it perceptibly different from the original. But this implies that the rendering must not behave identically to the original. If it did, either it or the original could be used to predict the other's behaviour. And then neither would be unpredictable. Nor must it behave the same way every time it is run. A perfectly rendered roulette wheel must be just as usable for gambling as a real one. Therefore, it must be just as unpredictable. Also, it must be just as fair. That is, all the numbers must come up purely randomly with equal probabilities. How do we recognise unpredictable environments? And how do we confirm purportedly random numbers are distributed fairly? Well, we check whether a rendering of a roulette wheel meets its specifications in the same way that we check whether the real thing does by kicking, spinning it, and seeing whether it responds as advertised. We make a large number of similar observations and perform statistical tests on these outcomes. Again, however many tests we carry out, we cannot certify that the rendering is accurate, or even that it is probably accurate. For however randomly the numbers seem to come up, they may nevertheless fall into a secret pattern that would allow a user in the know to predict them. Or perhaps if we had asked out loud the date of the Battle of Waterloo, the next two numbers that came up would invariably show that date, 1815. On the other hand, if the sequence that comes up looks unfair, we cannot know for sure that it is, but we might be able to say that the rendering is probably inaccurate. For example, if zero came up on our rendered roulette wheel on 10 consecutive spins, we should conclude that we probably do not have an accurate rendering of a fair roulette wheel. Pause there, my reflection. You have to read all of this in concert with perhaps my recent episodes on probability, including the chapter on uh, probability from Stephen Pinker's book, Rationality, and more importantly, perhaps the one before that, where I go through David's talk on probability. All of this, the same meaning is conveyed. What David says here conveys precisely the same meaning as I think he would otherwise phrase things now, because you know, his take is that probability is not a, a genuine thing, it's a scam, but there's a better way to talk about these things in the same way. So the roulette wheel, a fair roulette wheel, is subjectively unpredictable. We can't predict where it's going to go next because of uh, the quantum world. The quantum laws of physics are the things that mean that from our vantage point, we just don't know what number is going to come up next. But that's not to say it is literally random, literally random. And he probably wouldn't say the word probably so often. I don't know. What we would say here is where he says, let me just read it again. For example, he says, quote, For example, if zero came up on our rendered roulette wheel on 10 consecutive spins, we should conclude that we probably do not have an accurate rendering of a fair roulette wheel. End quote. I would say that one phrasing that we could use instead of using the word probably there is if you have 10 consecutive zeros coming up on a roulette wheel, a bad explanation is that that was just due to chance. One should instead hedge for, have the conjecture that there's been a stitch up, that it's a put up job, that someone is cheating and so on and so forth, whatever way you want to say this. What isn't the case is that it's, the best explanation is 
that's not a fair roulette wheel. <laughs> we don't have to have any probably about it. It's not a fair roulette wheel would be our working hypothesis until such time as someone can show us that in fact it is a fair roulette wheel, however they go about doing that. Let's keep going. David writes, quote, When discussing image generators, I said that the accuracy of a rendered image depends upon the sharpness and other attributes of the user's senses. With virtual reality, that is the least of our problems. Certainly, a virtual reality generator that renders a given environment perfectly for humans will not do so for dolphins or extraterrestrials. To render a given environment for a user with given types of sense organs, a virtual reality generator must be physically adapted to such sense organs, and its computer must be programmed with their characteristics, end quote. Yes, so that's interesting. So we have particular range of sensors, and then other organisms will have subtly different range of sensors. So it's no good having a virtual reality generator that is sending us the sensation of seeing ultraviolet or infrared radiation. We can't see those things. So the whole concept of accuracy here is a virtual reality rendering is accurate for a particular user. And if the particular user can't tell the difference between that thing and the real thing, then it's accurate. As David goes on to say, quote, This discussion of accuracy in virtual reality mirrors the relationship between theory and experiment in science. There too, it is possible to confirm experimentally that a general theory is false, but never that it is true. And there too, a short-sighted view of science is that it is all about predicting our sense impressions. The correct view is that while sense impressions always play a role, what science is about is understanding the whole of reality, of which only an infinitesimal proportion is ever experienced. Pause there, my reflection. There we go again. (laughs) There we have the beginning of infinity prefaced in, or a deep theme of the beginning of infinity prefaced in here, the fabric of reality. Again, he says, what science is about is understanding the whole of reality, understanding. So there we get explanations. An explanation allows you to understand reality. And we only ever experience an infinitesimal proportion of it. So this small amount of data that we are able to gather, that's the stuff that gives us our problems or allows us to distinguish between the theories we already guess. And those theories can be about all of reality. Wonderful. David goes on to say... The program in a virtual reality generator embodies a general predictive theory of the behavior of the rendered environment. The other components deal with keeping track of what the user is doing and with the encoding and decoding of sensory data. These, as I have said, are relatively trivial functions. Thus, if the environment is physically possible, rendering it is essentially equivalent to finding rules for predicting the outcome of every experiment that could be performed in that environment. Because of the way in which scientific knowledge is created, ever more accurate predictive rules can be discovered only through ever better explanatory theories. So accurately rendering a physically possible environment depends on understanding its physics. The converse is also true. Discovering the physics of an environment depends upon creating a virtual reality rendering of it. Normally, one would say that scientific theories only describe and explain physical objects and processes, but do not render them. For example, an explanation of eclipses of the sun can be printed in a book. A computer can be programmed with astronomical data and physical laws to predict an eclipse and to print out a description of it. But rendering the eclipse in virtual reality would require both further programming and further hardware. However, 
Those are already present in our brains. The words and numbers printed by the computer amount to descriptions of an eclipse only because someone knows the meanings of those symbols. That is, the symbols evoke in the reader's mind some sort of likeness of some predicted effect of the eclipse against which the real appearance of that effect will be tested. Moreover, the likeness that is evoked is interactive. One can observe an eclipse in many ways with the naked eye, or by photography, or using various scientific instruments from some positions on Earth, one will see a total eclipse of the Sun, from other positions a partial eclipse, and from anywhere else, no eclipse at all. In each case, an observer will experience different images, any of which can be predicted by the theory. What the computer's description evokes in the reader's mind is not just a single image or a sequence of images, but a general method of creating many different images, corresponding to the many ways in which the reader may contemplate making observations. In other words, it is a virtual reality rendering. Thus, in a broad enough sense, taking into account the processes that must take place inside the scientist's mind, science and the virtual reality rendering of physically possible environments are two terms denoting the same activity. Pausing there, my reflection. There's a depth to that that we can't, just brush aside (laughs) that science and the virtual reality rendering of physical reality physically possible environments are two terms denoting the same activity science this capacity to explain the universe is a virtual reality rendering inside of our minds of what's going on in physical reality that's what a human's mind is doing what a scientist's mind is doing when they explain the world they are rendering physical reality a version of physical reality, uh, to some degree of fatality, to some degree of accuracy, inside of their own minds. Uh, And this gets to the heart of this idea of humans as universal explainers, yet, of course, uh, I think, to be discovered by David, yet that doesn't come until between here and the beginning of infinity, but we're getting hints of it there, aren't we? We're really getting hints of it there. David goes on to talk about virtual reality machines that render physically impossible environments, one of which is, of course, you know, uh, flying an aeroplane faster than the speed of light. That is something that a virtual reality generator can do. It can render that environment. Now, who cares about that? Well, let's read what David has to say about these reflections on this idea of physically impossible environments being rendered in virtual reality. Consider a virtual reality generator in the act of rendering a physically impossible environment. It might be a flight simulator running a program that calculates the view from the cockpit of an aircraft that can fly faster than light. The flight simulator is rendering that environment, but in addition, the flight simulator is itself the environment that the user is experiencing, in the sense that it is a physical object surrounding the user. Let us consider this environment. Clearly, it is a physically possible environment. Is it a renderable environment? Of course. In fact, it is exceptionally easy to render. One simply uses a second flight simulator of the same design running the identical program. Under those circumstances, the second flight simulator can be thought of as rendering either the physically impossible aircraft or a physically possible environment, namely the first flight simulator. Similarly, the first flight simulator could be regarded as rendering a physically possible environment, namely the second flight simulator. If we assume that any virtual reality generator that can in principle be built can in principle be built again, then it follows that every virtual reality generator running any program in its repertoire is rendering some physically possible environment. It may be rendering other things as well, including physically impossible environments, but in particular, there is always some physically possible environment that it is rendering. So which physically impossible environments can be rendered in virtual reality? 
precisely those that are not perceptibly different from physically possible environments. Therefore, the connection between the physical world and the worlds that are renderable in virtual reality is far closer than it looks. We think of some virtual reality renderings as depicting fact and others as depicting fiction. But the fiction is always an interpretation in the mind of the beholder. There is no such thing as a virtual reality environment that the user would be compelled to interpret as physically impossible. Okay, then David goes on to talk about how virtual reality could be used to render environments where the laws of physics are different. So, in theory, sort of physically impossible environments. However, the mere fact that some virtual reality machine can render that environment makes it a physically possible environment. Because, look, the virtual reality machine is rendering that environment. So, therefore, it's physically possible to render the environment. So, you're having an experience which is physically possible, not physically impossible. <laughs> in a sense. And David talks about how imagination is a straightforward form of virtual reality and goes on to say, quote, I'll pick it up where he starts to say, quote, we realists take the view that reality is out there, objective, physical, and independent of what we believe about it. But we never experience that reality directly. Every last scrap of our external experience is of virtual reality. And every last scrap of our knowledge, including our knowledge of the non-physical, worlds of logic, mathematics and philosophy, and of imagination, fiction, art and fantasy, is encoded in the form of programs for the rendering of those worlds on our brain's own virtual reality generator. So it is not just science, reasoning about the physical world, that involves virtual reality. All reasoning, all thinking, and all external experience are forms of virtual reality. These things are physical processes which so far have been observed in only one place in the universe, namely the vicinity of the planet Earth. We shall see in chapter 8 that all living processes involve virtual reality too. But human beings in particular have a special relationship with it. Biologically speaking, the virtual reality rendering of their environment is the characteristic means by which human beings survive. In other words, it is the reason why human beings exist. The ecological niche that human beings occupy depends on virtual reality as directly and as absolutely as the ecological niche that koala bears occupy depends on eucalyptus leaves. End quote. End of the chapter. And there, once again, we have a hint, a, a, a window into the beginning of infinity because there, the characteristic means by which human beings survive, what is it? A virtual reality rendering of their environment. And what is that? An understanding of the, the physics of the environment, of everything, not just the physics, but of, of, well, the virtual reality rendering of their environment is the explanations of their environment, the explanations of the physical world, and not just the physical world, but the other parts, the other aspects of the world, the social world in which you occupy, that you occupy, the philosophical world that you occupy, the traditions and the culture that you occupy. If that is being rendered inside of your mind, the understanding that you have inside of your mind, the set of explanations that forms your worldview, is essentially a virtual reality rendering of your environment, which is connecting this book, The Fabric of Reality, to The Beginning of Infinity. David says there again, koala bears. I think it's not the first time that he said koala bears in this book. And every Australian, <laughs> every Australian, of course, balks at koala bears. But I'm not going to get into it. People can't even agree at the moment on what boys and girls means. So whether or not koalas are bears or not, I think can be passed over in silence. <laughs> but that is the end of the chapter. Let me read the summary at the end of the chapter here. David writes, 
Virtual reality is not just a technology in which computers simulate the behavior of physical environments. The fact that virtual reality is possible is an important fact about the fabric of reality. It is the basis not only of computation, but of human imagination and external experience, science, mathematics, art, and fiction. What are the ultimate limits? The full scope of virtual reality and hence of computation, science, imagination, and the rest? In the next chapter, we shall see that in one respect, the scope of virtual reality is limited, while in another, it is drastically circumscribed. Goodbye.